All right, this morning we are going to um, continue in the study that we've been having on the parables of Jesus. You know, I'm so thankful that we have Easter in our life. Now, Easter is not a parable. Easter is a fact. Easter happened, and we celebrated it last week. And the thing about Easter that is so amazing is that, and we've talked about this, is that Easter separates us, differentiates our faith because Jesus died. Clearly he died. Everybody saw it and many saw him die. He was buried in a tomb and then three days later he rose again, right? And there were people that he, he showed himself to numerous people, 500 at one time and who knows how many after that. So it was proven fact that he rose again. Therefore, his words are powerful, all the other religious men of the day, up to this, from that point, beyond that point, and today, they might have spe- said uh, nice words and truth, but they're all dead, and they're still dead, and uh, that doesn't bring the power into the words. And you know, it's interesting, because this uh, I, I post our sermons online after the fact, and, and then quite often I'll do a little Thursday, little uh, thing on Facebook, just a little encouragement, and... I had a, um, I don't get normally get a lot of, a lot of comments, but I did get one comment this week from a gentleman. He said, after he listened, or I, I don't know if he listened to or just read it, I don't know if he really listened to the message, but he said, he commented, incredible intolerance and religious arrogance. <laughs> you know, for us to state the fact that Jesus rose again and his words are the only one that have power, for a man to comment incredible intolerance, it says we're saying the right things. <laughs> it says we're speaking truth because it riles up the enemy. And the enemy doesn't like to hear it, and he calls it incredible intolerance and religious, religious arrogance, and we call it the truth of God's love. Amen? That's a, that's, so I did reply to him, and I said, hey, I'd love to talk to you, and I gave him my phone number, and I said, call me. And he said, no, I don't think so, because I'm not going to convince you, and you're not going to convince me. So I don't know if that will go any further or not, but we'll see. So today, uh, Larry, could you throw my slides up, please? Today we're talking about the parables of Jesus, and we are going to be talking about the parable of the talents. And uh, I've titled this, Opportunities and Rewards. Opportunities and Rewards. You know, this particular parable talks about accountability. And we are living in a society that accountability is sorely lacking. Um, people don't like to be accountable at any level. Accountable in their jobs, on their jobs, in their life, personally or corporately. They're looking for always an excuse or a justification. Accountability is a real problem. In today's world, that's why I think this parable has some significant um, for us significance for us today. And it's also interesting that this parable is recorded twice, and not the same parable in two different um, interpretations. But actually, Jesus gave this parable two different times. He gave it in Luke chapter nineteen, beginning at verse eleven through twenty-seven, and he also gave it in Matthew chapter twenty-five, verses fourteen through thirty. In Luke's account, Jesus tells the parable publicly, and this was prior to the time that he gave it in Matthew. He gave it to a, a public audience. 
to a group of people just a few days before Passover week. In chapter in Matthew, it is recorded in his last week. He, in fact, he told a lot of parables in that last week of his life. And a couple things that I, I think are really important about this is that, first of all, for the fact that he gave the same parable twice means that there is some significance to it. He wants to stress some of the principles in this parable because he gave it two different times. The other thing I think is important is that he gave it towards the end of his ministry. In fact, in Matthew, it's at the last week of his life. And I find that to be significant because if a person is knowing that they're toward the end of life, I think they're very diligent in the words they speak. And I think they want to make sure that they say the important things to people. And I think the significance is that Jesus feels this parable, the principles that we're going to talk about today in this parable, are very important, and he wanted to make sure they were stressed, that they were emphasized. So we have a big passage to read here. So if you have your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to read this account of the parable. Then we'll top light, we'll top it uh, off with Luke 19 at the end, just a little bit on that. So lots of scripture here. So um, in fact, if you're comfortable, stand with me if you read it. I think it's good that we honor the Lord by standing as we read his word. And you can read along with me. Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 14, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of these servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who, had, he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things, and I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look there, look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reaped where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Father, help us with this. This is a very important parable. And I pray that you just give us the truth that you would have us to glean from it today. 
Lord, help us to not, not to feel condemnation, but help us to, to feel the very pointed uh, conviction of the Holy Spirit in areas where it needs to be today. And I pray that you just give us your purpose in this, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The parable given in Luke 19 is very similar, but there are a couple of significant differences. So I just want to read a couple passages here from Luke um, so you can hear uh, some, of the, some of the various differences here on these two parables. It says, beginning at verse, verse Luke chapter 19, verse 11, it says, the crowd was listening to everything. You see, Jesus was speaking to the crowd now, not just to his disciples. The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to, connect, to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. Let me back up. Let me, let me say, what was going on here? Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, for, getting ready for Passover, and many of the people there are thinking that Jesus is going to be setting up an a immediate earthly kingdom to deliver them from the harsh rule of the Romans. And so many were coming with that impression, and Jesus is going to correct that impression here with this part of, the, part of this temp, uh, parable. So he said, verse 12, he said, a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Verse 13, before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided among them 10 pounds of silver, saying, invest for me while I'm gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want him to be our king. That's interesting. That's one of the details that Luke records in this parable that Jesus spoke that wasn't included in Matthew's parable. That how his servants felt about the master. See, according to verse 14, he says, but his people hated him. And they sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want him to be our king. That's really significant, and we need to understand what this means. So when we take these parables together, we have a lot to learn. And uh, we're going to try to get through as much of it as we can today. But, you know, the whole reason that we study Bible is not just to be history experts. It's not just to understand the history of what happened in the day, even though that's important. When we understand, when we study the Bible, the intent is that we're to glean out of it what God wants us to put in our lives today. It's a living word. That's what I love about the Bible. And that's what I love about the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit gave unction and gave direction to the writers. Without the Holy Spirit's presence in, in them, they never could have written God's word. That same Holy Spirit today is active in our lives to read it so that we appreciate and we glean what the Holy Spirit was giving to the writers of their day and also what we need to hear in our day. That's what makes the Bible different than any other book because the Holy Spirit lives in it. And if he's in your life, then that's one of the jobs that he has is to bring it alive to us. That's why when we read it, there's so much there all the time that we can get out of it. Amen? So let's talk about the setup here a little bit. The plot of the story in both, in both parables is, is relatively simple. A man, a, sir, a, a master that has lots of money, he goes away on a journey and he entrusts his estate to his servants. And where Luke's 
gets a little interesting here is that he adds the fact that the rich man who is leaving, is attempting, is going to become a king over a distant land or a uh, an area that they're going to be ruled under. But this man is hated. And you know what? I, I, I wasn't sure if that's really what he meant. So I looked up the word in, in the Greek, and the Greek word for hated is misio. And it means to hate. <laughs> it means detestable. I mean, it's not that just, they just didn't appreciate his leadership or they just didn't, didn't like him. No, they hated him. He was detestable to them. So it really is as bad as it sounds. And the servants of this parable really detested their soon-to-be king. That's important. Hang on to that thought as we go through this. This is something that the audience of the day probably didn't get it. They probably didn't fully understand why that was an important part of the parable that Jesus spoke. And I don't think people today get a full understanding of what this means either. I don't think if you were to go and talk to anybody around on the street or in your job and ask them, do you hate Jesus? Probably nobody would say yes to that answer. Nobody would probably admit the fact that they hate him. But I think by our indifference to him says a lot. If I'm indifferent to him, really what I'm indicating by my heart is that I hate him. It's hard to hear, isn't it? But it's true that we act out what's in our heart. We may not admit it to be hate. They didn't admit it to be hate. But this really parallels Jesus' story because in just over a week from this parable, Jesus is going to be entering into Jerusalem on a foal of a donkey and he's going to be hailed king of the Jews. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it wasn't just a few days after that that many in this same crowd were crying out, crucify him. The ones that were calling him king of kings, lord of lords, just a few days after that, after that mock trial, they were crying out, crucify him. Jesus was going to be that king, and they hated him, and and he was detestable. That's important. Because I wonder what that means in my life. I wonder what that means in our life today. No, we don't say crucify him, but maybe our indifference towards him is saying that. Isn't that right? Yeah, think about that a little bit. So Jesus is using the term talents here, or mina, as he did in Luke, is simply not referring to money. It's much broader in context than than just money because it certainly does include money, but it also includes Talent includes capabilities, abilities, your time, opportunities, um, etc. All these different things that we have to our disposal are all included as part of our talent. We all have them in our possession, so none of us can look at this parable and say, this doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does apply to you. It applies to me. 
In both of these parables, the master returns to take account of his servant's activities. The stories record that there are different amounts given. In Matthew, each servant is giving a different allotment of talent. One's five, one, two, one, one. In Luke, however, they're just all given the same amount. They take 10 servants and divide 10 pounds of silver or 10 minas to all 10. So it appears that everyone is getting one talent of silver or one mina of silver. So when the man checks in with the first servant, he comes back. The first two servants finds that they did exceptionally well. One um, brought double his money. In Matthews, they both doubled what they brought. In Luke, they, um, the second servant, or the first servant did a little bit more than a second servant, but both were acceptable to Jesus. Both were acceptable. Both were praised for their good work. But the third servant came in and didn't do anything with his money. And it was revealed that um, this guy had some major issues. When the third man was questioned as to why he didn't do anything with his resources, he, he responded with excuses based on fear. And instead of accepting responsibility, he blames his inactivity on the king for being a hard man. Again, we're talking about a lack of accountability. And now we're going to understand more why was he pushing back. See, it really, fear doesn't make sense. Because if he really feared the king, then he would have done something with the money. He would have at least put it in the bank to get some type of return back. He used it as an excuse, but I think it's very obvious that there's a bigger problem here than fear. The real problem with this guy is not that he's afraid of his master. The real problem is that he hates him. He hates him. He doesn't want to please him. He doesn't want to do anything good for him. In fact, he's probably hoping he never comes back and for the fact that he hasn't put the money on record someplace that he has the money, that he went and buried it, that if the king never comes back, he can go and unbury it and use the money for himself because nobody knows that he has it. So he's got a very selfish interest here, a very um, evil interest. He's not out to please his master. He hates his master, and he wants to use the money for his own benefit. So when the master comes back and unveils it to him, the master recognizes, says, you're not, afra- you're not afraid of me. You're just evil. He knows his heart. That's why the punishment is so severe. It's not that the master needed the interest. No, what he needed is a man that loved him. And when the man proved that he didn't love him, then the man was worthy of severe punishment. That's a major principle that we don't like to think about. So the outcome for this is that both stories end the same way in both Matthew and Luke, that he takes away from the lazy, wicked servant and he gives to the one that did the best. And like I said before, this parable isn't solely about money. It's also with our skills and relationships, our times, and and much more. And, And what we really need to see is that the bigger picture here 
is what are we doing with the amount that we're given? Uh, and so there's some lessons for here to, that we need to learn here. So I pray that we get into these next four lessons. We're going to hear some really good words here about how we can take this parable, these two parables, and that we can learn from what God would have us to do in our lives. So first lesson, we're not all created equal. We're not all created equal. Number two, it's not how much you have, it's what you do with what you have. Number three, God's concerned more about character than performance. And number four, you will be held accountable. So let's dig into these four lessons. We're not all created with equal skills, talents, or resources. Let's just face the fact. We're different. (laughs) And there's nothing wrong with being different. And uh, even in our society today, that's a problem. They don't like to know that we're different or think that we're different. We have different skills. We have different talents, different abilities. See, in God's eyes, we're all created with the same value. He loves us all the same. There's no difference in God's eyes who you are. He loves us all the same. He doesn't have favorites. However, God doesn't create us all equally in terms of how he distributes the talents that he creates us with. We're different. And let's just accept that fact. That's okay to be different. God builds diversity in his creation for very specific reasons. He doesn't want us all to be the same. Society is built on diversity. Think about that. If we all had the same skill set, we might be all really good at one thing, but who would do the other things? (laughs) You know, I mean, we need to be different skills and we need to recognize it and we need to... um, Encourage people in the skills that they have to do the best they can. And you need to to encourage me and my skills to do what the best that I can do. And different skill sets and different gifts are not only necessary in our society, but they're necessary in the church. We all have to do different things for the church to be functional. Some have many talents, others not so many. That's okay. That's not a negative. See, that may seem unfair in our society, but it's fair to God. Understand this. It's fair that we're different. It's fair that you may have better skill sets and areas than I have. And it's not, it's not necessary that we're equal because God doesn't equate talents to value. That's really important for us to appreciate. God doesn't equate talents to how he values you. The guy that's more talented is not valued by God more. We have a really hard time because we equate ourselves. We measure ourselves by how good I am compared to somebody else. And that is an enemy's ploy to frustrate. It's not, it's not what we're supposed to get out of this, par- this parable at all. The bottom line is God created you to be who you are with the gifts, the talents, the capabilities, and the resources he has given you to accomplish what he desires in your life. He's got a plan for you. He's got a design for you. 
And he's gifted you with exactly what you need to have to get what he wants from your life. You don't have to be like the guy sitting next to you. So don't even try to be. Just be who you are. And let God use you the way he's gifted you to be and know then that he'll be pleased when you put your effort into it. We need to be content in our own skin. You need to be okay with who you are and not compare yourself to somebody else. Because as soon as you do that, problems fester. That takes us to lesson number two. It's not how much you have, it's what you do with it. Understatement of the year, really. This is really an an important statement. Like I said, it may not seem fair in our world's politically correct standard to think that, that God makes us different. But that is exactly what God intends to do. It's okay. God expects us to manage the talents and our abilities and our resources that he's given to us, whether there are few or many. God doesn't make judgments according to the exterior. What he sees, what he does is he looks on the inside first. He looks inside your heart to see the motivations that motivate you to do what you do. And then from there, he measures your activities. We, on the other hand, men, we are the WYSIWYGs. What you see is what you get, right? What you see is what you get because that's all that we can see. We can't see a man's heart. So what you see in me is what you get in me. But God examines the heart of a man before he looks at what the man does because it's the motives of why we do what we do are really what God's concerned with. He's really concerned about the motives of the heart more than necessarily what happens on the outside. Just like the rich ruler didn't need the money from these guys, it was just really a measurement of their heart towards him. It's the same thing with God. Does God doesn't need my money. He doesn't need my resources. All he's looking for is my heart. Do I love him or do I hate him? And that's what this parable is trying to get us to understand. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. And let me just say that this is where we so often screw up. Because rather than being content in understanding what we have and properly managing and growing and being responsible and accountable for the little or much that God has given me, no, what we tend to do is we look over the fence over the neighbor And what does he have? (laughs) What does she have? If I only had what they have, I would be successful. If I could only do what they do, then I would be happy and I'd be productive. Isn't that so many times the way we look at life? Rather than just being accountable for what I have and doing the best for what I, I can do, I justify my failures by saying I don't have as much as that other person. I I don't have the same talent they have, so therefore I can't do what they do. And the answer is absolutely, you're right. You can't do what they do. So quit, quit trying. 
Just do what you do the best you can. And that takes us to lesson three. Lesson three says, God's more concerned with our character than with our performance. Now, we've stressed how important our actions are. However, measured on their own accord and measured the way we measure things, they can be very deceiving. We can fool a lot of people by doing the right things in front of the right person at the right time. That's the old do and hide strategy of being a good Christian boy. I lived that way for a while. Actually, when I was growing up, I lived that way a lot. I knew how to be a good church boy in front of grandma, but I knew what I wanted to do on Saturday night too, right? And we need to grow out of that. We need to grow up in our Christianity. The parable of the talents in Luke 19 makes it very clear that the lazy servant's problem wasn't that he wasted his talents. It was really that he hated his master. The poor use of his talents was a byproduct of his heart. The poor use of his talents wasn't that he was afraid. He had a bad heart. And this is very telling in our lives as well. What is our heart? Where are we spending our time with our talents? The Bible makes it very clear that for those that love Jesus, listen to me, for those that love Jesus, obey Jesus. It's very clear. John chapter 14, 21, then 23 and 24, it says, whoever has my commands, this is Jesus speaking, and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. And Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. What does this mean to you? What does this passage mean to you? How do we love the Lord? How do we prove our love to the Lord? By doing what we want to do? By living a life that I want to live and then expecting God to bless it? Or do I prove my love by having a good heart towards my Lord? Do I prove to him that I love him because I'm reading his word and I'm obeying his word? And even Jesus felt that he had to say, And if I'm going to say them even more so, these are not my words. (laughs) These are the words that belong to the Father who sent Jesus. So Jesus wasn't just trying to propagate his own agenda. He was simply stating what his Father stated. And that's what we need to state. As a church, as a pastor, as believers, we need to state what the Bible states. And this is a fact that if I'm going to prove, if I'm going to say I love Jesus, then I better obey him. And it better live for him. And it better be pretty obvious to the world that I'm doing the things that Jesus wants me to do, not what I want to do. Our actions are motivated by our character. And if our character is bad, then our actions will reflect that. We'll be known by the type of fruit that's on our tree. If we claim to be an apple tree, we better have apples and not oranges. 
If we claim to be an apple tree, we better have apples and not an orange. We better be showing the love of Jesus to the people around us. Listen, that doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. I, don't, I want to stress that. It's not that means you're going to be perfect in everything you do. However, you're going to seek perfection through repentance. When you make a mistake, you're going to be the first one to say it. I made a mistake. Please forgive me. God measures the, qual- the quality of the heart. Listen, he measures the quality of the heart before he measures the quantity of what it produces. He measures the quality, not the quantity. Now, he wants to see a good return. He wants to see a lot of quality in your life. But he measures the quality, not the quantity. And I don't think that we're able, we're going to, Able, we're ever going to be able to fool God like we fooled grandma. We're not going to be able to fool him on that day because in Proverbs 24, 12, it says, don't excuse yourself by saying, look, we didn't know. For God understands all hearts and he sees you. He who guards your soul knows you knew. <laughs> he will repay all people as their actions deserve. So we can't come to him on judgment day and say, God, I never knew Jesus. He's going to say, yes, you did. It was given in a man's heart. That's what a, that's what a, a God, that's what a conscience is for until we sear it. We know evil. We know good. We know right, wrong. You know, it's not right to steal. You know, it's not right to be a, a, um, you know, a fornicator. You know, it's not right to be a person trapped in, in all kinds of sinly, sinful activities. And the only way that it ever becomes right for you is that you've done it so long, so, so many times that you've seared your conscience. And that takes us to lesson four. We will be accountable. You will be accountable. The king, being Jesus, will return and every person, that means you, it means me, every person will be held accountable for what God has given us. We will be accountable for the things that we're doing. And listen, this is not a threat. Don't take it as this is, you better do this or else. That's, don't take it that way. Take it rather as a, this is a truthful purpose of God's word to educate us, to inform us that judgment day is coming someday and we will be held accountable to it. And don't look at it as a threat. Look at it as an opportunity Look at this as an opportunity to be educated. You see, God wants you and me to do well. He wants us to succeed in life. He wants us to be blessed. He really does. He's given us everything we need to accomplish good work. Everything. We don't need, we're not lacking anything. The Spirit is here to give us everything we need to good work. He stacked the deck in your favor and in my favor. You see, we need, to, we need to remember here that we have an enemy, right? And our enemy's number one goal is to take everything that God is and make it bad. He wants to turn every positive of God and make it negative. He wants us to think that God is a hard taskmaster. In the parables here, um, it was the third servant, the lazy servant, the wicked servant that said, I was afraid because I knew you were a hard man. The master never said he was a hard mad man. He just repeated what the servant said of him. God is not a hard taskmaster. 
But the enemy would think, would want us to think that he is. The enemy would want to think that God is cruel, that God is unloving and he's uncaring and he would love us to think that God is harsh and judgmental and legalistic. That's what the enemy wants us to think of God. But that's not the nature. That's not the character of a loving God. This parable, like I said, is more of an opportunity than it is a threat. And here's the most important lesson you can walk away from today. If you forget everything else, remember this. God's accountability equals rewardability. God's accountability equals rewardability. You think, you have to recognize that accountability is only a threat to a person when they aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. Accountability is only for the person that is doing what they know is wrong and they know they're going to have to give an account for it someday and that's why they don't like accountability. But if you're doing the will of God, if you're doing the right things, if you're being a good public servant, if you're being a good citizen, if you're being a good person and you're living everything you can to the the best of your ability, then you're not afraid of accountability because you're doing everything to the best you can. So you're not afraid of the judge. You're not breaking the speed limits. You're not, you're not afraid of what the laws are intended to reveal in you because you're doing the things the best of your ability correctly. That's why accountability equals rewardability. Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12, it says, Remember, each of us will stand personally before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. Yes, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And then Paul says in Romans or Second Corinthians as well, verse 5 and 10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may receive what is due for us in the body, things done in the, while in the body, whether good or bad. Accountability is only negative when we're lacking in our efforts. And our society has a real issue with people being required to be accountable for anything. Do you see it around us? This whole woke generation? This whole issue, it started a long time ago with everybody that participates gets a trophy. There's no more competition, even for little kids. There's no, no competition. Let's not make anybody feel bad. Let's not give trophies. Let's not give first place. Let's not even keep score. Accountability started, the lack of accountability started really early, and people have been fighting it for a long time. You've got to remember that if, if God is for something, Satan is against it every time and in every situation. Just, I mean, as I look at this, I look around, I I see it's so obvious that the things that God establishes as being good, that how it's all twisted around today to be wrong. And it really is coming past, to pass what the prophet said before, that, that in the end days especially, that dark will be light and black will be white and right will be wrong and wrong will be right. And it's so twisted around right now, it's so upside down. So if God is about accountability, the enemy is about non-accountability. 
Again, this is not a negative message at all. Actually, it's very freeing for us because we're learning how to be accountable. And as we learn how to be accountable, we understand how important it is that we can be rewarded because we're doing the right things. Let me, let me, let me give you an example. This is kind of a funny example. This goes back to when Chris and I were younger and we had children in the household. Jenna is our youngest daughter and, um, she was, um, um, she followed all of her big sisters and brothers to every athletic event they went to. She was drugged to more gyms and more activities. And finally, when she was, I don't know, six or seven years old, I don't remember how old she was, but her first real opportunity to be on a team sport was soccer. And Jenna was pretty athletic. And she had been watching her, you know, her older siblings throughout their time. And so she learned over the time from them. And so this, her first game, I don't remember how many goals it was, but she like scored like five goals. I mean, just bang, 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 did, you know, just was dominating. And so uh, after her fifth goal, she goes running by the coach. She literally, she purposely ran towards the coach side. We're standing, we're standing there watching. And as she's running by the coach, she yells out, hey, coach, when's the awards banquet? She was used to seeing her brothers and sisters getting awards at the end of the season because they excelled in the, in the sports that they did. So she runs, hey, coach, when's the award banquet? And Chris and I go look at each other and go, oh, I hope the other parents didn't hear her say that. You know, it was, just, it was really kind of embarrassing. But there's a real lesson here for us to learn because if we're going to be rewarded in the end, it requires to work hard in the beginning, Rewards don't come unless you put effort into it along the way. All of our children, four children, were good athletes. And in high school and in college, um, our three oldest, our three daughters all played college volleyball. And our son, uh, senior year, uh, broke his back playing basketball. So he, that sidelined him for many potential post-high school activities. But, but our daughters played volleyball. And, and so here's, here's some examples I want to draw from this. Because, first of all, there are, Five levels of college athletics. There is the junior college level. There is the NAIA division level. There is the division three level, the division two level, and the division one level. Division one being the highest level of competitiveness, right? So the point of that is that it doesn't make any difference what level you play at. You're going to have to work as hard as you can at any level to be successful. And just because a person may be playing at the Division I level, let me just tell you this, that does not make that person a better person. Yes, they may run faster, they may, they may be bigger, they may throw the ball harder, they may jump higher, they may have a better skill set in some things, but that doesn't make them a better person. It doesn't make them with better character. In fact, I think we all have known examples of the professional athletes that are at the cream of the crop, and many times their character is probably the worst. So skills don't mean you have character. It has nothing to do with that. But the lesson that we can learn, the observation that we made here, is that at all levels, whether you're NIA or Division Three or Division one, whatever, you have to work hard and be diligently disciplined if you're going to succeed on the team and if you're going to make your team successful. So you have to be disciplined. Discipline is a key trait 
for their success. And we watched this in our girls. They worked hard. They ate a good diet. They got good sleep. They worked out in season and out of season. Even when the coach wasn't watching, they were working hard. They did everything they could do. They came to practice ready to learn. They came to, they came to games ready to play. Whether they played or not, it was irrelevant. They were ready. They had disciplined themselves. That was what was expected of them if they were going to be a contributing part of the team. They worked hard. It, doesn't, it, it matters not the level of competition that you're at. You still have to give it all if you're going to be successful. Does that make sense? Do you see the spiritual analogy in this at all? That we should be living our life. We should be living our Christian life running down the sidelines. Hey, Jesus, when's the awards banquet? Seriously, we should be living our life excited about our judgment. We should be living our life excited about the fact that we're going to be accountable. Because if we're actively scoring goals in the kingdom, then we'll be anxious to be rewarded. Revelation 22, 12. Jesus says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. My reward is with me. He's coming prepared to give rewards. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. Let me ask, is that selfish of me to be looking forward to my rewards? Is it selfish? No, because the only way that I am going to be rewarded by him is when I I understand that my rewards are based upon me serving you. When I am unselfish in my life here and I'm working and diligently in the kingdom, I'm serving people. I'm about my master's business. That is what gains rewards. If I'm selfish, then selfishness really says I won't get rewards. Because if I'm selfish here doing what I want to do, then there are no rewards based in heaven for me because I'm doing what I want to do here. That's selfish. You see, again, the devil will take anything that God says and he'll make it the opposite. So it's not, in, it's not selfish for me to be looking forward to my rewards in heaven because the only way, way I'm going to be rewarded is if I'm diligent on earth doing my master's work. That's why we have in our foyer, we're heavenly effective when we're earthly relevant. We're heavenly effective through earthly relevance. Only when I'm relevant to the people around me, only when I'm loving people the way Jesus loves me, only when I'm serving people the way I'm supposed to be serving, am I going to be rewarded in heaven. That's the point of this parable. Because it's proving to the fact that I love him. I love him and I want to please him. And the way I please him is to please you and to work for you and to be the servant of you and you to your people that you have relevance over. Does that make sense? Jackie, would you come please? 
I think I need to say it again because I think it's so important that we, that we are, are understanding. Accountability is only upsetting to the person that knowingly is rejecting the truth of God's scripture and living life the way that that pleases that person, disregarding of what God is asking of them. Accountability is, o- is only a, fra- a, a negative. It's only upsetting when I am being selfish because then it's about me. Then I need to be afraid of accountability. With the accountability comes rewards. Otherwise, what's the point? Otherwise, what's the point? There must be a reward system. There's nothing wrong with that. The parable of the talent shows us that God will hold us all accountable to all of his commands and he is faithful to reward each person according to what they have done. This shows us how much we love him. This shows him how much we love him by being faithful. Last passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 11 through 15. Paul says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because a day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been, has been done built, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Listen, this passage is kind of interesting here because our mentality cannot be of one that is escaping through the flames. If our mentality is reduced to the fact that I just want to get through the fire and I want to escape through the flames, the chances are you're not going to escape through the flames. <laughs> the chances are you, you really aren't proving God that, to God that you love him. The way we prove that we love God is to obey God and to work at it with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And to go all in on this. If I just go in with a, an, an attitude that I just want to be good enough, I just want to sneak into heaven, then chances are we're not going to make it. God cannot be fooled by outward appearances. He will judge righteously and freely, so let's be wise and diligent in the opportunities that God has given us to be productive in the kingdom, to prove our love for him. This is what I want him this is what I want him to hear me tell me what I when I get there. When I want when I finally get into heaven's gates. I don't want him to say, "Boy, that was close." Man, you just barely made it in, Mike. No, no that's not what I want him to hear him to say. I want I want him to say is, "Well done." Well done, Mike. You did a good job. You were faithful. You didn't have the biggest church. You didn't have the biggest TV ministry. 
You don't have any TV ministry. But you did a good job. You did a good job. And that's, you put your place there. You did a good job. Well done. Now come and share in your master's happiness. Amen? That's what this parable is about. That we prove our love to him by putting our, our hand to the plow. Working as hard as we can work. Being as selfless as we can in this life. To reap a bounty of rewards in heaven. Uh, what a great day that's going to be. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this parable. I thank you, Lord, that you've given us opportunities in this life. God, help us not to be afraid of accountability. And I hope that we understand now that the only way we're not going to be afraid of accountability is to do the things that are rewardability. That we're doing the things that are pleasing in your sight. Living for you, proving the fact that we really do love you because we're obeying you. Not legalistically, not because we have to, but because we want to. Because it's our desire. You've given so much to us, which was started proven to us last week at Easter. And now help me to return my love to you through diligence and through discipline and through a love for you that knows no limit, that I will do anything that you ask me to do to the best of my ability. I thank you for that. I give you praise and glory for your purposeful faithfulness to us. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand with me if you will. And uh, let's uh, sing, build my life. And let's use this as the time to worship before we go to our homes.
Father, what a song to end the service on today. That we really will commit our hearts and lives to you. That we will live for you to the best of our ability. And that you'll look down upon us and you'll be pleased with what you see because you're seeing people that are working hard because they love you. And not because you're a taskmaster. Not because you're a hard master at all. Because you're gracious and you're faithful and you're true to your word. And so, Father, we just want to love you today. We want you to see the love in our heart, and that would be, a, it would be evident through our actions. I pray, God, that you would forgive us for the times that we failed you. Give us a heart change in the, in the areas where we need to be changed. Challenge us. Lead us. Guide us. And help us to be faithful to you as well. Thank you for that. Give us a great week as we go to our homes today. In our circle of influence, wherever we go, I pray that the Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us and keep us, that we'd be diligent in your kingdom until the day you come back. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be blessed today. Have a great day. Amen.